like you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. As we begin this morning, I would like to um, just read a, a couple of excerpts from an article that appeared in USA Today. And the article was entitled, The Las Vegas Shooting, Don't Attack Politicians or Me for Offering Prayers. It's quite a title. It begins by saying, Senator Chuck Grassley sent out a standard prayers for victims tweet after the Las Vegas shooting, and the response was swift and brutal. NYC Newbies tweeted this in response, what is your prayer? I pray the families of those killed don't realize just how complicit I am in the proliferation of mass shootings, unquote. Peter Jacobson added this, your prayers are not enough. There's no reason for us U.S. citizens to own weapons that can cause mass murder. It is insane to think otherwise. Another person tweeted, laws stop this, not prayers. Do your job. You get the idea. Grassley said Wednesday um, after that that he hadn't seen the Twitter responses but cited a Bible verse calling on prayers for all leaders. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and for all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That comes from 1 Timothy 2. The author says, I've been watching the backlash rise against the expression of thoughts and prayers for a while now with more than a little unease. We've seen snarling responses to prayers offered for victims of hurricanes, floods, and wildfires along with the lines, um, along the lines of, quote, get off your knees and donate volunteer work to stop climate change, unquote. The assumption is that an offer of prayers is either just a meaningless platitude or it's merely a hypocritical facade for someone who doesn't really care enough to act. That attitude is a self-made trap and it will prove counterproductive, she says. I'm furious that 58 people were killed and more than 500 injured after the shooting in Las Vegas. I'm livid that this keeps happening and nothing is done to prevent it the next time. I'm disgusted, but don't tell me not to pray about it. Don't tell Grassley not to pray either. Prayer to me, the author says, is not a passive act. Time spent with God, expressing gratitude for his blessings, asking for help, or just quietly listening is never wasted. I brought regular prayer back into my life just over a decade ago, and it has made an enormous difference. Prayer and God's grace are helping me get through the recent tragedy of a young friend's suicide. It's giving me strength to help support his parents and to work for change in our state. Prayer is action. It's not an excuse for inaction. I believe if those who offer prayers actually talk to God instead of just tweeting, they may gain greater wisdom and strength to do what's right, not just what's politically expedient. I realize that many people who post thoughts and prayers on social media are really doing neither. I understand the impulse to call them out. Even so, don't put God on the other side by attacking, attacking prayer. We need all the help we can get, unquote. Now, say what you want. As far as I'm concerned, the writer of that piece, Kathy Obradovich, hit the mark. And in the midst of a politically charged article read by a largely secular audience, she raises an important point that the Christian church at large would do well to pay attention to. And it's this, that prayer is supremely important. In the midst of societal oppression, in the face of physical, emotional, and spiritual weakness, and with a view to the effectiveness of Christian community, prayer is the power that will feed our faith. And that cannot be emphasized enough. Had Kathy Abradovich been part of the church of the first century, I think James would have been very proud because that's his message to us today in chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. At the heart of faith's endurance is the practice and power of prayer. 
Look at James chapter 5 and follow with me as I read from verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Here, in this section, is the second bookend to James's letter. He began with a reference to prayer in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, and he ends with prayer here. When it comes to living out your faith, either on the front lines of the world or in the church, believing prayer is a powerful force regarding every area of life. The Jews had a saying that he who prays surrounds his house with a wall stronger than iron. Every single one of the six verses that I just read to you in this paragraph contains a reference to prayer. Every verse. It's no wonder that James was referred to as old camel knees, unquote. Quoting an ancient tradition, the writer Eusebius said of him that he spent so much time in the temple praying for people that his knees became as hard as camels. James must have practiced what he preached. I'm convicted. No one's calling me old camel knees. How about you? Anybody calling you that? You cut this section of James's letter anywhere and it bleeds of prayer. In every conceivable application, James refers to prayer as a pertinent practice for the Christians. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you happy? Praise. You know what that is? That's just prayer and song. Are you weak, sick, or in a world of such hurt that you don't have the strength to pray for yourself? Call the elders and have them pray. Is there sin in your life? Confess, and then what? Pray. Get right with God. Get right with each other and pray. You know what? That kind of prayer gets it done. And it's powerful. And it's effective. And it's energizing. And it accomplishes things, says James, the things God wants accomplished. It accomplishes his will. And we all have, and we have a human illustration to prove that it works. Elijah. That's what this text of James says in a nutshell. And that's really all it says. Now, why do I say that? Because that's what I'm going to give you. I have no desire to get into all the controversial subjects that have spun off of this text. And there are many. It's no secret that this section of James has generated no shortage of views regarding faith, healing, Faith healing, miracles, and the like. I would say its misinterpretation has fostered even flat-out heresies. Whole denominations have been formed around some of the things people think James is saying in this text. Now, I'm taking a completely different tack today. Usually, I dive right into all of that material, and I will mention some. But this morning, I just want to give you the straight scoop from James as I see it. Plain and simple truth. So I've broken it down into four segments of what I think James wants us to grasp. Let's try to get through it this morning. But again, prayer is more than just an idea that he wants us to grasp. It's a practice he wants us to employ. As I said at the very beginning of this series, this letter of James is all about faith and working your faith and having your faith work. And at the heart of faith's endurance, I will repeat it again, is the practice and the power of prayer. 
And so James, first, the first segment that he says here, he says, memorize the precepts. That's my, that's my summary of that. Memorize the precepts, verses 13 to 15 here. And it starts out this way, when it's all spiraling down in your life, what's the answer? Pray. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. The word suffering here is a broad application referring to trouble or trials of any kind. He's referring to outward circumstances that are getting the best of you. Trouble, affliction, temptation, possibly persecution. You're getting hit from the outside from every angle. James used this same word back in verse 10 of this same chapter about the oppression the prophets had to endure while living out their faith. So are you experiencing any of that? Or maybe you're just experiencing a host of other issues that James has referred to throughout this letter. What's your first response? James says it ought to be prayer. Pray. Turn to God. And he uses the most common word for prayer in the entire New Testament. That word's used over 80 times in the New Testament. He doesn't give us the content of that prayer. He doesn't give us the long and the short of the prayer, the wording or the regularity of it. He doesn't even stipulate the position that we're supposed to use, the language we speak, or the location we find to do it. He just simply says what? Pray. Just pray. Just do it. But don't just do it. Do it continually. That's what the word implies. Turn to God and plead with him on a continual basis. It's so basic that we forget to apply it, don't, isn't, isn't it? It's just basic. As Chuck Swindoll put it, people don't usually have a hard time turning to God in prayer when their lives are unraveling, do they? However, how long does it actually take them to actually turn to him? People tend to put off prayer until their backs are right up against the wall and they can't work out a solution on their own. But James just simply says, let him pray. Prayer should be our first response, not our last, because it can provide the answer. James doesn't say prayer is the answer. You ever hear that? You ever said that? Prayer is the answer. He doesn't say prayer is the answer. He says it's the action. God has the answer. And prayer takes us to God. It's a response of faith. Prayer is faith's first responder. That's what James is saying. Make sense? That leads James to address the opposite scenario. So when you're spiraling down, pray. When it's smooth sailing, pray in song. That's what he says there in verse 13, the second part. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Actually, the term is sing psalms. Sing praises, but that's just prayer in musical form. The term originally meant to play the harp, and that's particularly apropos to me because whenever I'm cheerful, I just grab my guitar and I sit in a room by myself and I play. And I pray through music. This term cheerful refers to an emotional state of deep-rooted happiness rather than a superficial joy dependent upon favorable outward circumstances. So when you're cheerful, deep down inside, sing praises. Pray. Pray in song. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. One commentator suggests that we need this reminder more than we need the first reminder. Because when things are really going great, turning to God ought to still be our first response. But do we? So when you're spiraling down, James says, pray. When you're sailing smooth, James says, pray. And then thirdly here, he says, when you're sick and tired, verse 13 is, uh, for, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? When you're sick and tired, and when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, pray. The word sick here is more pointedly without strength. 
And it really depicts the idea of weakness, feebleness, and incapacitation. While it most often refers to physical sickness in the New Testament, it can also be used figuratively to refer to those who are spiritually spent, fatigued, and weakened. In fact, there are those who feel that this particular text is referring specifically to those people who are spiritually debilitated and cannot function. They are experiencing this emotional and mental effects of their trials, the temptations, and the persecutions to the point where they are spiritually fatigued and they cannot pray themselves. They've lost the ability to endure, spiritually impotent. So this text could refer to either spiritual sickness or spiritual weakness. Suffice it to say that the effects are so drastic that it can even affect our own ability to pray for ourselves. That's why James says, what does he say in verse 14 if you're that sick? Do what? Call for the elders. Call for the elders. The term call here implies serious urgency. Here's where the church of the 21st century needs James's instruction every bit as much as the church of the first century needed it because we simply don't do this as much as we should. Not enough anyway. The fact is, most of the time, the pastors and the elders are the last to know when someone is that physically weak or spiritually weak. Eventually, we find out but often, more often than not, it's not until it gets really, really serious. In fact, it, it's in those times when people literally, what do they want to do? They want to do just the opposite, and they want to keep it private. I don't want to burden anybody with my problems. Well, let me just say this, out of both respect and concern, that's not what God's Word says to do. James says here that when a person's moral, physical, and or spiritual state is to the point where they are severely weakened when they can't even pray themselves, they are to call for the elders. Notice here, it doesn't say wait for the elders to call you. The responsibility is on the person to call for the elders. It's not the other way around. James uses a term here that places the responsibility on the person who is sick to summon the elders. The idea is that the elders are to go to that home or that place where that person is. And there is also no indication here at all that James is advocating bringing the sick person to a public healing service. It doesn't say that. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Neither does it say call for the people in the church who have the gifts of healing and the gifts of miracles. Doesn't say that, does it? I don't care whether you believe those gifts are still in operation or not. That's not what James says to call for. He says, call for the elders. Definitively. Why the elders? They're the ones who are appointed as under shepherds of Christ, according to the New Testament, and charged to care for and oversee the body. Who de- These are the ones who devote themselves, or supposed to devote themselves, specifically, as Acts chapter 6 says, to prayer and the ministry of the word. There are all kinds of qualifications for these men. You can find them in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. 1 Peter 5 talks about shepherding the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly. Hebrews 13, 5 says, hey, obey those who are your leaders and submit to them. Make it easy for them because they have to give an account to God for you. Does that mean that no one else in the church can pray or is qualified to pray for someone who's that sick? Obviously not. James highlights that important and beautiful point in verse 16, which we're going to get to in a little while, but where he engages everyone in the church community to pray for each other. 
But in verse 14, he says, call for the elders. Does it mean that the elders are somehow more super spiritual than the rest of the church? No, of course not. But they clearly have been placed by God in a position which requires spiritual wisdom, experience, maturity, and diligent devotion to both prayer and God's truth. And if those, those people aren't that way, then they shouldn't be in eldership. You see, it's a humbling and extremely convicting position to be in, to say the least. To all who are, you know that elders and pastors, we will all be answerable to God as to how the ministry of that position is fulfilled one day. That's why James talks earlier about a similar position when he says, let not many of you become teachers because you're going to be subjected to a higher judgment. Now, don't read something into this text, folks, that isn't there. James simply just says it this way. Let him who is sick call for the elders and let them pray. Verse 14 again. They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. The elders are to pray for the sick person in this way, says James. Number one, pray for them personally. Pray over him, it says. This is a beautiful picture of the elders surrounding the weakened brother or sister in, in humble but confident prayer. Now, over the years, I've done this with, with various elders on many occasions in this church, and it is one of the most powerful and meaningful and spiritually bonding experiences that I have ever been privileged to be a part of. It's just amazing what God does in those situations. So pray personally over them. The elders ought to pray specifically. It says anointing him with oil. So much ink has been utilized on the meaning and the application of this that it's impossible for me to cover it today. In a nutshell, I want to give you a few views on this. Here it is. Number one, some feel the anointing is medicinal and hygienic. In other words, it's used, this term is used in Luke 10, 34, when the good Samaritan pours wine and oil on the wounds of the victim, of the injured man, to both cleanse and soothe. Now, while that view is attractive, I find no reason to believe that the elders are being enjoined to act as physicians here. Presumably, any medicine that is supposed to be represented by the oil would have been properly administered prior to the calling of the elders. Others feel that the oil is strictly ceremonial and symbolic, representing the presence of the Holy Spirit and the healing power of God, thereby consecrating and setting the sick person apart unto God. And still others see a sacramental aspect of the oil. The Roman Catholic Church, the church I grew up in, the tradition I grew up in, developed the idea of what is called extreme unction now called the anointing of the sick, which is administered to a dying person in order to cleanse any remnant of sin and strengthen their soul, preparing them for death. Now, in my opinion, there seems to be no basis whatsoever for that here in James, as James's eye is clearly on the idea of healing and restoring the person, not preparing them for death. So it seems best, in my humble opinion, that the oil could be both soothing but representative and beautifully symbolic. And this is also the way the term is used in, this, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when priests were anointed with oil. It was representative of the Holy Spirit coming upon them, setting these people apart for God's use, for God's care, for God's service. And so as we anoint people with oil and pray over them, we're really consecrating him or her to God, placing them under his healing care and power. Nevertheless, the thing we cannot lose sight of 
here is that the clear emphasis of this text is not on the oil, it's on the prayer. So don't forget that. It's the Lord through the prayer offered in accordance with his will that accomplishes the healing, not the oil, not the elders. Jesus healed many without the use of oil, and so did the apostles in the book of Acts. So the elders are to pray, they're to pray personally, they're to pray specifically, and then it says they're to pray faithfully. It says in verse 14, in the name of the Lord, both the anointing with oil and the prayer itself is to be done in Christ's name. That means the prayer must be in accordance with faith because without faith, you know, it's impossible to please God. Is that right? Any healing, any restoration and raising up that is going to take place will happen because and only because we have prayed according to God's will. That's what it means to pray in the name of the Lord. It means to pray as if it were the request of Christ himself to the Father. And Jesus said in John 4, 14, when you pray that way, and he used the phraseology, in my name, you have the requests that you pray for. That you have what you ask for. And so the idea is to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, to pray in the name of the Lord and then leave it to God. Amen? 1 John chapter 5 and verses 13 through 15 are really instructive here. And they are powerful verses that we really ought to understand, number one, and also apply. By this, in verse 13, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Look at that qualification right there so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What a wonderful verse. What a great, powerful promise. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Can it get any more plain than that? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death and I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Now, we're not going to get into that part of that text, but the point is, is that it says, if we pray according to God's will, he hears us, and we know we have the requests which we ask from him. So, coupling that with James here, the whole idea is that after you have done all, that James says to do, and if you have done it according to the Lord's will, James says the results will be practically and spiritually fruitful. Look at verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Make sense? And this is where the text often gets brutally abused. I remember growing up in grammar school and having one of the kids that rode my school bus die of pneumonia. That's pretty traumatic when when a friend of yours in sixth or seventh grade dies from something like pneumonia. And I found out later that he probably would have survived, but his parents refused the help of doctors and prescribed medicine, opting to believe instead that God would heal him. Now, I'm not calling into question on anybody's faith, anybody's faith. But these are the kinds of things that that people take this text out of context and apply 
I've read countless stories of people who have turned completely away from Christianity in hurt and anger because their child died after a faith healer prayed for healing and it did not happen. The healer charged that the parents didn't have enough faith and that's why the child died. How cruel can one person, can you be? You know, if that's what James was saying here in this text, they got it all wrong. Because if that's what James was really saying here in this text, it would be the so-called healer who prayed who should be charged with not having enough faith, not the person who is sick, right? Because it says here that the elders are to pray with faith. Not the parents. However, James is placing a high priority here on the truth that the prayer offered by the elders must be offered in faith. This Alexander Strout places, he says, places a solemn responsibility then upon the elders to be men of living, vital faith and prayer. They need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, in tune with God. But on the other hand, this is no carte blanche guarantee that every prayer uttered for healing will always result in healing. God heals as God chooses. I remember many of you know and remember Mike Godding. I remember he had uh, had cancer and was dying. And, they, and, and there was one point in time, I remember, in that situation where they rushed him into the ER in an ambulance, and basically he was dying. And I uh, didn't think they were, he was going to make it out of there. And I remember Gene called me and called uh, their son Ryan, who was also a pastor, elders, and the family. And we went into that ER, and we prayed boldly for God to heal. He was unconscious. He wasn't, he wasn't communicating with it. And as we prayed, I just opened the Bible and began to read Scripture. And lo and behold, Mike opens his eyes. And he rallied. And he got out of the ER. And he went home. Mike didn't die that day. God raised him up and restored him that day. God had something more for him to do that day and for the days following. But make no mistake about it, he eventually passed away because that's what we all do. But it was God who decided to raise him up on that day. See, when we're on board with what God wants to do and it's his will to heal, whether physically or spiritually, we know without a doubt that it will take place. But sometimes we don't. We don't know that it's going to take place and we don't know how to pray. More often than not, we don't know how to pray. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit who makes intercession in our weakness, sometimes with groanings too deep for words. I have a friend right now who is uh, really suffering with a rare, rare disease. And it came on that fast. Many of you may remember, came here and preached last spring when my wife and I were away in Scotland. And he was pretty energetic all over the stage. He preached really well. He was just, he was free. He had just resigned, retired from his uh, pastorate and he was doing a different ministry and he just like let loose and, and preached well. It wasn't very long after that that he contracted a rare disease that began to just completely tear him down physically and mentally to the point now where he's suffering with this thing. Years ago, this would have been a death sentence, but now they've got some treatments that they're trying, but he's not really getting better. And so a lot of us are praying for him. There's a big prayer vigil going on for him. And... Um, but here's the key thing. They've, they've found this treatment, that a clinical trial type of an experimental treatment that he can be part of and he qualifies for it. But here's the catch. 
he needs to be showing, he needs to be either staying the same as he is now or getting worse before they will admit him into the program. If he improves, they won't take him. So how are we supposed to pray? I'm going to leave that one with you. You pray for God's glory, you pray for God's will. We want him healed, yes, but God can heal him through the experimental program, even if he declines before that. And through that knowledge of what they learned through that experimental program, they might be able to heal a whole lot more people. So do we pray for him to get worse? Or do we just say, God, heal him. And then he gets better and no clinical trial. I don't know. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. And that's why this section in James, you cannot make it a formula. See, James has a habit throughout this letter of just making a statement with no explanations. He doesn't say anything about the when or the how of the healing here. There are obviously biblical examples when healing and restoration were not God's will. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul prayed three times for the removal of the thorn in his flesh. Did Paul not have enough faith? God said no. The clear explanation is, is that it was God's will for him not to be healed because God was going to be more glorified in the fact that he wasn't healed. 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul urged Timothy to use wine to cure his stomach and frequent ailments. Why didn't Paul just pray a prayer of faith over him? Did Paul not have a, a, enough faith? Again, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 20, Paul left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Why didn't Paul heal him? He left him sick. Even the apostles in the New Testament don't heal indiscriminately. Only God heals, and according to his time and according to his rules. He uses human agents and gifts of healing to do it sometimes, but it's not just a formula. Please don't misread James's text here. The prayer of faith can indeed be the means of God's healing and surely is. I believe it. So we are to pray. We are always to pray, but it is God who is the ultimate source of the healing. Always God. Always God. So when you're spiraling down, pray. When you're sailing smooth, pray. When you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, pray. And the implication here also is when you're stuck in sin, What's the answer? God's the answer. Prayer's the action. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Verse 15. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. James says that along with the healing, if a person has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Again, don't make James's statement here say more than what he says. Maybe the weakened condition of the person was due to unconfessed sin. And that happens. Sin can be the source of a person's sickness. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 31, in the communion feast that they had. Because people were partaking of that feast in a sinful fashion. They were not examining themselves. They had things in their life that were sinful. It says that many of you are sick and some of you even die. 1 John chapter 5. Again, we just read it, that there is a sin that leads unto death. Mark chapter 2, the situation where Jesus heals the paralytic, right? That they lowered down through the roof. He heals them both physically and spiritually. But what is the first thing that Jesus says to him before he says, get up and walk? Your sins are forgiven. See, there's an undeniable interrelationship between the body and the condition of the soul, but not all sickness is directly caused by sin. Job's experience clearly shows us that Jesus' words, um, you know, when he healed the man born blind in uh, John chapter 9, revealed that sickness was for the glory of God, not due to his sin or his parents' sin. In Job's case, it wasn't his sin. But I got to tell you, as James says here, it's always prudent to invite God to search our hearts first to see if there be any wicked way in us. 
Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked or hurtful way in me and then lead me in the everlasting way. It's often through the spirit-led prayers of the elders in a situation like this that sin can be exposed and then healed. It's here that James makes a subtle shift then from the importance of the prayers of the elders back to those of the greater community of faith. And so quickly unfolding the rest of this passage, besides memorizing the precepts regarding the importance of prayer, I believe James is inferring here, secondly, that we maximize the process. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Prayer as the heart of faith's endurance, involves more than just focus on sick individuals. This needs to be the focus of the church at large. Sometimes the whole community is weakened by the sickness of sin. And as we've seen through the last 24 messages in the book of James, circulating through this church were incidents of pride, jealousy, selfish ambition, quarrels and conflicts, worldliness, lust for material wealth, discrimination against the poor, complaints against one another, and a glaring lack of godly wisdom, unity, faith, and love. It's no wonder there was spiritual weakness and sickness and prayerlessness in the church that James is addressing. James' corrective here, again, is simple and it's very purposeful. He says, he says it really plainly here in verse 16, There's two simple actions. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That's simple. And note the order. Confession, then intercession. Why? Because Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, and then he gives one stated purpose. James says clearly, so that you may be healed. And the entire community is enlisted to do this here. By confessing our sins to each other and praying for each other, the spiritual health and quite possibly some of the physical health of the church is ensured. You see that there? Now, I've been on this simplified tack for a while now. It's really kind of on my heart and it's starting to work its way practically into my life. I'm getting rid of things. Sometimes things really near and dear to me as some of you know. And to me, this text hits the target. Simplify. Simplify. If these two principles, confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another, if they were our discipline, were our constant practice, I believe the power of the Holy Spirit among us would not be contained. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, to be sure, James is not advocating indiscriminate public confession of sins. And I expect you to stand up here and start dumping to each other. Uh, James isn't saying that either. The vomiting of our souls to each other without qualification or relevance can do more harm than good. No, I believe James is prompting us to deal with those specific people and those specific sins that have caused harm that have caused conflict, that have caused enmity, that lie spiritually and relationally unresolved. Hence the commands to examine ourselves before taking communion and the seeking of forgiveness and reconciliation with each other before bringing our offering of worship to the Lord in Matthew chapter 5. So God will use a person and a church powerfully who engages in this kind of thing. So, as James implies in his next statement, personalize the principle, but don't minimize the power. Look at the last part of verse 16. What's it saying? The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Personalize the principle, but don't minimize that power. See, there's a lot, there's not a lot here to contend with in that statement. It's the word of God. And the word enjoins us all to have faith in the power of prayer. And here's the undeniable principle. The effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. You believe that? 
Here's the literal translation if you want the straight scoop on what James says here. This is the literal Greek translation. Very much strong is the energetic petition of a righteous person. Sounds like a Yoda statement. <laughs> Very much strong. <laughs> you know. Who is the righteous person? Simply the believer in Christ who has received and is living out the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. The truth is, when you're in a right relationship with Christ, you can pray strong prayers. Energetic prayers, that's what the word here is. The word for uh, effective and accomplish is the word where we get energy from. It's effective. It's powerful, that kind of prayer, James says. And it accomplishes things. Actually, James says, when you're in sync with God, it accomplishes very, very much. Not always right away but sometimes right away. I give you this experience. To, I haven't shared this with hardly anyone, but it just seems like God did this. I don't know. Maybe I'm supposed to share it. I had two funerals this week. It's been a busy week. And on Wednesday, as I was putting the finishing touches on the service preparation. Before leaving my office, I, was, I grabbed my stuff and I was heading out the door to come and talk, mingle with the family before the, the, the funeral service. And God said, stop. Go back to your place of prayer in your office and get on your knees and I want you to pray for this thing. And the prayer was strange. He really prompted me. He said, I want you to pray that the words that you speak today, the word of God that you quote today is going to lead someone to me and save their soul. Now, I always pray those kinds of generic prayers before any service, but this was specific. And I'm like, Lord, I've never had that happen. That a person after a funeral would come up and, what must I do to be saved type of a thing, you know? Nobody gets that very often. Lo and behold, did the funeral, came back to the reception, was standing around talking. was a young man talking to a group of us. Kept looking at me. Finally, he says, can I talk to you in private? We go out in the back hallway, and he starts dumping, crying. I need to get my life right with God. I said, are you willing right now, ready to confess your sin and to... Ask Christ to come into your life and be your Lord and Savior. And he said, yes. He said, well, let's pray together. And he did. And I went, that kind of thing makes you want to jump out of your skin and scream from the housetops at the Lord's astounding goodness, mercy, and grace. Amen? Amen. You want to live right there every moment of every day. What a gift God gives us to be involved in prayer. Amen? And how often do I miss that? How often do you miss that? How often do we as a church miss out on that? Because in this section, he's no longer talking about the elders. He's talking about every person that has Christ in their heart and soul, his word on their lips and his spirit in their soul. That's what he's talking about here in verses 16 and 17 and 18. As one author reminds us, prayer, James wants to make clear, is a powerful weapon in the hand of even the humblest believer. It does not require a super saint to wield it effectively. And that's what James says finally in verses 17 and 18. He says, don't miss the picture. Don't miss the size, the practice. You might be thinking, here, look at what it says in verses 17 and 18, and then we'll wrap it up. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And that's where he ends it. It doesn't give any explanation. He just ends it there. But I think what he's getting at here in this power of prayer uh, text is that don't miss the picture of Elijah, but don't mysticize the practice. And you might be thinking to yourself right now as you read that, yeah, well, that's Elijah. And guess what? I'm not Elijah. Is that right? Read the text again. 
closely. What's it say? It's not the miracle man and the super spiritual icon that James is interested in here. He's highlighting the fact that Elijah was a simple man with a nature like ours. He had to cope with fear. He had to cope with depression. He had physical limitations just like you and me. He ran and hid himself in a cave from the threat of a tyrannical woman in 1 Kings chapter 19. Yet in 1 Kings 17 and 18, he prayed powerful prayers for rain and for drought. For You know, literally, James says he prayed with prayer. Actually, you know, there's no Old Testament verse that says that Elijah prayed for the drought. It's inferred in 1 Kings 17 and 18. But Jesus even said, that because of Elijah's prayers, it didn't rain on the earth for three years and six months. The power of Elijah's prayers did not lie in his supernatural greatness, my friends, but rather in his humanity that was submitted to God's will. It was never about Elijah. It was about Elijah's God. That's what the name Elijah means, by the way. Yahweh is God. Don't miss that picture. And don't mysticize the practice. He prayed. It's that simple. So I'll leave you with this. If Yahweh is your God, you can pray powerful prayers. So pray them. Samuel Chadwick in the 1800s was a Wesleyan Methodist minister who pastored and preached both in Scotland and in England. I'm going to leave you with his words. This is what he said, plain and simple. Quote, the one concern of the devil, he said, is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. <laughs>